0: So pull up a chair and join us on this journey from our little yellow house to yours.
1: The Raising Boys and Girls podcast is brought to you in partnership with Minnow. Minnow provides meaningful screen time and shared experiences for families to help you grow in your faith together. Check them out at podcast.gominnow.com. That's podcast.g-o-m-i-n-n-o.com. We are over-the-top excited about today's guest. This is someone we have long respected, recommended her books more times than I could possibly count, and thrilled that you all are going to get to lean into a really rich conversation that we shared around consistent practices today. So we are delighted that our guest is Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. She is the author of Bottom Line for Baby and co-author with Dan Siegel, of The Power of Showing Up, and The Yes Brain, as well as two New York Times bestsellers, The Whole Brain Child and No Drama Discipline, each of which has been translated into over 40 languages. That's amazing. And I'm so thankful that's the case, that anyone anywhere could read that book. Tina is a psychotherapist and the founder executive director of the Center for Connection, a multidisciplinary clinical practice, and of the Play Strong Institute, a center devoted to the study, research, and practice of play therapy through a neurodevelopmental lens. She emphasizes that before she's a parenting educator or researcher, she's a mom. She limits her clinical practice and speaking engagements so that she can spend time with her family. Alongside her husband of 25 years, parenting her three boys is what makes her the happiest. Tina, thank you so much for being with us. We are honored that you would spend this time with us.
2: Oh, I'm so excited to be here. I can't wait to dig into whatever you want to talk about.
1: Well, we were talking before you
0: all joined us about how your books are required reading for our entire staff at Daystar. We just love everything that you do. And so to glean from you ourselves is such a fun treat today.
1: It really is. That's
2: so nice. I'm so glad to know about your work too.
1: Thank you. Well, can we start out asking you Something about your newest book?
2: Yes, I'm so excited about this book. So, this book was actually the first idea for a book I ever had. Wow. It was the book I wanted most when I became a new parent. And now that first baby I had is about to turn 21. Wow. But I'm glad I waited till now to write it because now I have the perspective. Yes. But really, what the book is is okay, here's what happened. I'm a new mom. I want to be the most intentional parent I can be, right, to quote your work. And so I get informed and I talk to people. But it seemed like everything I would read or everything I would hear was in total contradiction with each other. So then I was like, what do I do about this? (laughs) So this book is 65 topics where we get the most competing information. It's arranged alphabetically. So if you're in the hospital and you've just given birth and they ask you, like, do you want your baby to have their first bath now or do you want to do that at home? You're like, I don't know. I didn't even know that was an option. <laughs> or my baby's crying all the time. Can I give him a pacifier? Or is it okay to use sunscreen? Or what about sleep training? Like all that stuff. So in just a couple of minutes, people can turn to whatever that entry is. And each entry is broken down in here are the main competing schools of thought, or here are the two kind of sides of this sometimes there's more than two. Then there's a section that says, here's what the science says. And I combed through the science, only pulled good like meta-analyses, current research. Sometimes there's no research and I tell that. Then the next section is the bottom line. So here's the basic bottom line, what you need to know about this. And then I worked really hard to just report accurate objectively, but I have a lot of opinions. So (laughs) I have a section that says, A note from Tina. And this is where I weigh in about my own thoughts about it or what I did or a mistake I wish I hadn't made, those kinds of things around that topic. The main message in the book, though, is get informed, be intentional, but then trust yourself and trust your baby and forget about what everybody else tells you you have to do or that you shouldn't do. Like every family is different, every baby is different, every parent is different. And we have to find our own ways and do what works for our families. And then one other big message is. All these decisions we make as parents, and this is true at any developmental stage along the way, in the moment, they often feel like the most important decision, and it's going to have a huge impact on how our child turns out. But the truth is that, you know, whether you decide to give your kids fruits or vegetables first when they're four to six months old, or whether or not you use cloth or disposable diapers or all. Most of those things truly don't matter in the way that we think they do. What matters most is the relationship we have with our child. So kind of putting it in perspective a little bit too.
0: That's so hopeful. We have talked a lot, and I'm sure you see this too, that it feels like, I think in light of what we've been going through culturally, it seems like more parents are questioning themselves than ever before. And so for you to have that message of trust your gut, trust your baby. Oh, I just love that. Communicating that to me.
2: We do. We have so much information, right? So there's so many different things coming at us and we really do doubt ourselves. But the other mistake I think, Sissy, that goes with that is that we somehow have come to believe that it rests on us exclusively in terms of Mm. how our kids turn out. And yes, what we do matters for sure. But our children's other adults in their lives, their teachers, their peers, the other experiences they have away from us, all of these are part of socializing them and developing them. You know, I just gave a talk yesterday on resilience. And one of the things I said is the formula for raising a resilient child is not you being a hyper involved, perfect parent that constructs the world beautifully, even if you don't do anything. And there are certainly lots of things we can do to build resilience in our children, but just letting them play And letting their brain develop, just trusting development, that's going to be a big part of it. So I think we put so much pressure on ourselves that we are solely responsible for the construction of our children's brains and how they turn out. And maybe that's hubris, maybe it's fear, but I think we need to say, yes, I'm a crucial, important part of this picture, but I'm not the whole picture in terms Mm. of this kid.
1: Yes. (laughs) I love that. Yes. Okay. And I'm going to pause here to every person listening. We all know people who are pregnant, just had a baby. When we're thinking about gifts, no one needs another onesie, all right? So (laughs) everyone listening, get the bottom line for baby. What a gift to new parents. That's
0: so true. Great suggestion, David.
1: order multiple copies right now online. So you've just got them to give. That's your favorite baby gift going forward. And I want to ask you this, too, when you were even speaking to that, just that parents are more afraid than ever. Yeah. Are there one or two consistent practices that you would recommend to parents of newborns or toddlers in addition to the really great advice of showing up?
2: Yeah, I think one is delight in them. And what that means is you don't have to delight in them every second. You know, I felt like I needed to stimulate my baby with the most wonderful developmental toys and be on every second with my baby. That's actually pretty intrusive. Like my kid was like, can you just give me a minute to look around the room without (laughs) you shaking something in my face, right? But what I mean when I say delight in them is have moments every day, regardless of the age of your child, even if they're adults and not living with you, find a way to delight in them just having moments of observing them, lighting up in response to them, that's so crucial for really some of the best benefits for our baby. The other thing is to take care of ourselves. I know everyone hears that and it's so boring to hear, but no one does it. (laughs) Like We're so bad at doing it. So I feel like Our own capacity has a huge impact on how well we are able to be present with our kids. So caring for ourselves, that needs to be a consistent practice, like having moments of delight for yourself. And then the other thing I would say that is sort of my North Star is really the message in the book that I wrote with Dan called The Power of Showing Up. Like you mentioned, besides showing up, I have to say it anyway, is that regardless of the age of our kids, but particularly for our our babies and our young kids, when they're having the hardest time, that's when they need us the most. And so Mm. to know like, I'm not sure what I should do here. The answer is to help your kid feel safe, to have your kid feel seen by you and understood by you, and then to soothe them, to show up, to build trust. So it's really just about not perfect, but consistent, predictable, sensitive care so that you're building that trust. So your kid has enough repeated experiences, again, not perfect, to say, gosh, when I have a need, She sees it and she responds to it. She shows up for me. So now their brains actually get wired to know that when they have needs, people see them and show up for them. And that's so important in them even taking the next step to be able to show up for themselves and take care of themselves and show up for other people. So that's such an important piece of consistent practice is showing up in predictable ways, doing our best, even if it's not perfect. Hmm. I love that. Consistent, predictable, sensitive care. That's a great yeah. Statement. That's the best way to define what secure attachment yeah. is, actually. Yes, that's yeah. so
0: true. And I know you have done so much research in all of these books, but probably, I mean, obviously, the most recent with this book. Was there anything that surprised you that came up about infants, toddlers?
2: Yeah. Oh my gosh. Honestly, coming through the research is not my most fun thing to do. Mm-hmm. I'm a nerd. I love the science, but reading those horrible long studies. And some of them are so bad, you know, that <laughs> I think, why did this yes. ever get published? Yeah, there were a few that really <laughs> surprised me. One is around exposing them to allergens early in life and germs early in life is a good thing. It used to be that they would say, don't let them have strawberries or nuts or those kinds of things until older so that they don't develop those allergies. The research is strong right now that we want to start exposing them to highly allergenic foods. Early and it actually helps them build tolerance. And related to that, I don't know if y'all ever had this experience, but every once in a while, you don't have a faucet. Your kids drop their pacifier, and so you kind of lick it clean. Are you like <laughs> right? Sure. You know yes. And it's kind of gross. This is actually really good science support for this, that parents who lick their kids pacifiers, babies who suck thumbs, families that have pets, like the more germs your kids are exposed to in terms of those kinds of things, reduce eczema, allergies, asthma. So germs are good. Like don't over sanitize, which I know is really hard right now with all of our super hyper sanitizing. But another thing I found fascinating and kind of scary is that 95% of car seats are misused. So we really want to keep our babies safe, but make sure that you're reading the instructions, make sure you have a safety expert inspect and teach you how to do it. That was shocking to me. Mm. And then just one other one that's, there's actually lots. Um, yeah, this is of, fascinating. You just keep going. Yeah, keep going. we love, Okay, okay, good. One that I found fascinating, and I actually had seen this study before I started working on this book, is that extended pacifier use, and this is like beyond age two or three, I would say more on the age two category, extended pacifier use in boys We've seen some decreased emotional intelligence. And this was really hard for me to hear. My kid, I had a kid that was such a passy connoisseur that he had one in his mouth and one in each hand when he slept. Like <laughs> he loved his passy. And the thinking behind that is that when they have a pacifier, it actually blocks them moving the micro muscles around their mouth that happen when they're watching other people's emotions. Wow. Right. We have these mirror neurons. So, David, if you were to. You know, have a sad look on your face without me even knowing the micro muscles around my mouth and eyes would actually shift to mirror your state without me even realizing it, which then tells my brain, oh, sad. And so our bodies are much more involved in detecting emotion than people thought. So when those pacifiers are in there, it can actually block some of that mirroring that happens that's connected to emotions. Why do we not see this in girls? We only have speculation and theory around this. And that is that parents still, even now, tend to do more emotion-focused dialogues with their girls. So they talk more about emotions and feelings. And so that may counter some of that for girls to be a protective factor, even when they use pacifiers longer. So I thought that was really fascinating. Yes. Yeah. That, is that is fascinating. fascinating. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Thanks
1: for sharing that. I oh, know. Speaking yeah. of your books, we have recommended the Whole Brain Child and No Drama Discipline to more parents than I could possibly count over the years. <laughs> They're yes, they are such valuable resources. And will you talk about some of the consistent practices you recommend for dealing with? I love when you all talk about tantrums, tensions, and tears.
0: And I have yeah. a two-year-old nephew that I'm with a lot, so I really am leaning into this You're <laughs> considerably. Excited to hear
1: more about yes, tantrums I'm so and tears. About
2: that. <laughs> In a lot of ways, The Whole Brain Child and No Drama Discipline were kind of radical books. They were very different in really shifting what our culture thinks about children's behavior and how we should respond to it. A consistent way to think about this is that what we do matters and that our children's brains are built dependent on the repeated experiences they are given. And for me, there's a ton of hope in that because that means it's never too late. So when a parent reads these books and says, oh, gosh, I haven't been parenting in the way that I'd really like to. I want to make the shift. Is it too late? Have I already damaged my kid? We just say, no, you provide new experiences. The brain adapts to those new experiences. So I love that message of hope there. When it comes to the discipline philosophy, you know, what we really argue in that book is that most of what we do in our culture in the name of discipline makes no sense and is actually (laughs) counterproductive when you understand really the purpose of discipline and how the brain learns. So... I think one of the biggest mistakes we make is that we are so focused on the behavior itself instead of the why behind the behavior. So then we're just treating symptoms that are going to keep coming up if we don't address really what's underneath that behavior. And related, we focus so much on what consequences we should give or what punishment. And we're forgetting that the whole point of discipline is to have children become self-disciplined people. which requires a lot of coaching and teaching. So really a consistent practice for me when it comes to, okay, my kid has just done something not okay. What do I do in this moment? In my mind, I have to first remember that my job as a disciplinarian is to be a teacher a coach and a skill builder. So really having that framework to remind myself, okay, my job right now is to teach. So what that means in practice is that typically, instead of doing something to my kid, like, okay, now you're on restriction. You don't get to see friends because you waited till the last minute to do this project and you're not being responsible with your time. So now here's your punishment. Instead of doing something to my kid, I can then start to think, what do I need to do for my kid to help them build those skills? So I say, okay, behavior is communication. So that's the other thing. Our kids' behaviors are telling us exactly the areas they need skill building in. So when my kid waits till the last minute, Sunday night at 6 p.m. and says, hey, can you take me to the craft store? I need to get some stuff for a project due tomorrow morning. I get mad in the moment, you know, but then later I go, "Okay, he told me something. His behavior basically said, hey, mom, you know, all those skills around executive function, planning ahead, figuring out what materials I need. I don't have those down yet. So instead of punishing him for something that he doesn't have yet developmentally, I'm going to say, okay. What this means is I need to give him some repeated experiences of building those skills. So on Fridays, when he comes home before the weekend stretches in front of us, we're going to look at his planner. What does he have coming up? And ask him, how much time do you think this is going to take you? When is this due? What's your plan for this? Mm. Or when it comes to little kids and they're having tantrums, those behaviors are telling me this kid hasn't yet developed the ability to manage disappointment yet. And developmentally, I don't expect them to. This is going to take some time. So what can I do in the moment? I can help soothe them, comfort them, give them empathy, not just because I'm being nice, but because when I do that, it moves them from a reactive state where they can't learn anyway back into a receptive state where they're ready to learn. We have to ask in those moments, too, a consistent practice would be to say, am I ready to teach right now? Am I ready to be a good Mm -hmm. teacher or am I too reactive to do that? And is my child ready to learn? And if the answer is no, my kid is still out of control right now, then what can I do to move them back into a receptive, connected place with me where their brain is ready to be receptive again? The first thing I'm going to do is the most effective thing, comfort, connection, soothing, empathy. Then my kid gets back into a receptive state, and then we do the teaching. So it really is a total shift in how we think about the behavior and how we respond to the behavior with teaching in mind, with skill building in mind, and asking, is this kid ready to learn or not? A lot of the punishments we throw or the consequences we throw make it less likely kids are going to learn because that either makes them more reactive or or they focus on us and how mean we are to do this to them <laughs> instead of taking responsibility and accountability for their own behavior. So it really is a huge shift in our practices.
1: Mm. Thank you.
2: Yes, I love that. Too.
1: The Raising Boys and Girls podcast is brought to you in partnership with Minnow. Did you know that Minnow has an award-winning children's Bible written by VeggieTales creator Phil Fisher The Minnow Laugh and Grow Bible for Kids is more than a children's Bible storybook. It's a deep, engaging, and whimsical gospel experience. Each Bible story is vividly illustrated, takes just minutes to read, and includes a family connection to encourage readers to learn, talk, and pray together. Find out more at shop.gominnow.com. That's shop.gominnow.com.
0: So you mentioned your own children, and in light of all that you've been learning and your experience professionally shifting to your own kids, what would you say are two or three of your guiding principles as a parent and how you've implemented this in your own home? Oh, it's
2: such a good question. I would say number one is the four S's that I mentioned earlier of secure attachment that we talk about in The Power of Showing Up. So there are a million moments as a parent where I go, gosh, I do not know what to do here. But the four S's helping my kid feel safe and seen and soothed and secure, knowing I'm going to show up no matter how bad you messed up. That is my guiding principle. What that means, like in the moment, like I'll just give a teenage example. I won't be specific to protect my child's privacy, <laughs> but I have three teenagers. So it could be any one of them. Teenagers do really dumb, risky things. And there are a lot of brain reasons that they do that. But what that means for me is when my kid does something risky and it activates all this fear in me, I need to pause and know when I'm not ready to engage because I'm not going to do it well. So to say, we're going to talk this through, but I'm not ready to do that. So making sure we add in a pause when we need to. And then I can say to my kid, instead of screaming and yelling, I can't believe you did this. You're so irresponsible. Do you know what could have happened to you? That's what I want to say. But instead, I can say my number one job is to keep you safe. And you did something that didn't keep yourself safe. So what that means is the reins are coming in a little bit so that I can be there to make sure you're safe until you're ready to make those decisions in a more responsible way. So it's a really different way to even interact. So those four S's really do guide me. The other thing I would say that has been just so huge, and I have to attribute this pattern of belief and this practice for myself to Dr. Michael Thompson, who wrote a million wonderful books. Yes. Best Friends, Worst Enemies. And the book that's had the biggest impact on me that he's written is a book called It's a Boy. I have three boys. I actually think the book is good for girls, too, because it's really very much a book about development and different stages and ages. But one of the messages he drives home that has been hugely important for me is that we really can trust development. I've mentioned that a couple of times already in different ways in our conversation here. But there have been so many times where I'm like, gosh, I've really worked on this with my kid and he's still not getting it. Or, you know, is he always going to be like this? And these moments of fear as parents that really can be so intruding on how we handle things. So I don't want to be a fear based parent. I want to be a mindful, present parent that's aware of my fears, but not acting from that fear. So what that often does for me is to say, I can trust development. Right now, my kid's in a stage that is. Concerning for me, or I'm worried about this, or and we always do this dramatic thing, like, I'm like, oh, my kid's sleeping in bed with me. Like he's little and he wants to come be in bed with me. He's gonna sleep with me forever. And eventually he's gonna just <laughs> live in a van down by the river and never right. amount to anything, right? Right. So when we have that mantra of I can trust development, like when they're ready. Things happen and the brain continues to develop, even again, without me doing anything. So, just trusting, trusting that development to unfold and that they're going to continue to be the person they're meant to be if I don't get in their way. Mm.
0: Just feels like such a grace based approach Mm. for folks to hear. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely.
2: Yeah. My Christian background has a lot to do with sort of how I see everything in the world. I'm definitely also an optimist. And we have to give ourselves grace too. That's super important. Mm. Yes, mm. it is. Especially today. Yes.
1: <laughs> Along those lines, what's a consistent practice you've done recently? Either something with your kids or, or even when you were talking about self-care a little bit earlier, a consistent practice for yourself as a parent?
2: You know, right now, the world is very unpredictable. And unpredictability activates a sense of threat and danger in our nervous systems. Just some science behind that question that's so important is creating some consistency and predictability actually helps our nervous systems feel safer. It makes us not have to be so hyper vigilant to watch the world for threat, which allows us then to be curious and engaged and relational and learn things. It's such an important thing. So, right now, particularly when the world is so unpredictable, I'm trying to create some rhythms in the week of our family. So, For us, it's very food-based. I'm just going to be honest. So (laughs) that means I declared about three weeks ago, Friday night is pizza night. And I'm so excited. Today is a Friday. We're going to be ordering pizza and watching a movie tonight. So it's pizza and movie Mm. Friday nights. We have dinner together every night as a family. And so that's Mm. a really important, consistent practice that we've done with rare exception when there was a baseball game but still we would go to in and out and eat after we just always have eaten dinner together as a family for the Wait, most can part. I pause That's you huge. and
0: say yeah. this is remarkable that you have three teenage boys and you can get them to sit down and have a family dinner with you. You need to crack the code on that too. <laughs> right. for all the-
2: Part of it is the pandemic, right? I mean, right. what other options do they have, <laughs> right? True. But still even when they had football or baseball, you know, then on those days I would do crockpot or we would stop at Chipotle on the way home. Like, it didn't matter if it was a delicious meal or if it was a, you know, fast meal. But that has always been something that we have, you know, and on the weekends when our kids, you know, especially pre-pandemic, they had plans on the weekends with their friends. So I don't mean that they have to eat dinner at home every single night, but... I mean, right now they are because there's yes. no other options. But, right. But also, that
0: says a lot about you, Tina, that they want to be with well. you. Mm-hmm.
2: And, you know, I have to say it's a lot more fun now that they're older. Like, my kids are in ethics classes and we're having, they're just much more interesting to talk to than when we talked about you know, butts and fart faces, (laughs) you know, at dinner time. So it's much more fun now. And we have game night on Sunday night, unless the conversation with dinner is so good that we're just staying with it. Every Wednesday night, I do crock pot oatmeal. So Thursday morning, they wake up and there's oatmeal and like, so it just creates a rhythm and a predictability to the world. So like I said, very much food based, but that's really important. And then for me, consistent practices for me, exercise at least three days a week. I'm working out with my best friend and it's essential eight hours or more of sleep as many nights as I can. Those are crucial. And then I'm just going to be honest. Those sound like really healthy, wonderful things. I have a less healthy, consistent practice that I just love. And that's watching trashy, crappy TV. (laughs) I love like... My husband and I will watch like The Crown or something like legit. You can tell people you're watching. And then he goes to bed (laughs) and I watch something like Married at First Sight or The Bachelor or whatever. And I have my sparkling water and I have my six little mini Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. I don't bring the bag because then I eat way more than six. And it's like a moment of delight for me. And I do it. It's my favorite part of the day is when after dinner, put on my jammies. I get on the couch with my fuzzy blanket and my dog and my husband and whatever kids around. And it's time to, I'm also a fake relaxer. My friend Audrey Monkey (laughs) called me out on being a fake relaxer, (laughs) which means I'm on the couch in my jammies, but I'm actually working while I watch TV also. So I'm working really hard on being a real relaxer too. And I've cut back on work to make sure that that happens.
0: I wish you lived in town and we could hang out with you. We like so many of the same things. Well, let's make that happen. Yes. We love it. (laughs) So thinking about your kids in ethics class and all these conversations you're having around the dinner table, if you had to say a couple of things that your kids have been teaching you lately, what would you say?
2: You know, teenagers are really good at pointing out hypocrisy. (laughs) I think one of the things they're teaching me is to trust that they can handle complexity. Um, and that complexity is important. And what I mean by that is not complicatedness. But, you know, like if I tell people... Don't do everything for your kids. Don't fix everything. That doesn't mean never step in and help your kid, right? So I think we sometimes come up with these really simple ways of saying, you know, this is right, or can you believe that person did that? They're a horrible person. And to really look at, and right now, you know, obviously we're having lots of conversations about politics and we have people in our lives, I think as everyone should, who thinks differently than they do, but then to have conversations like how can we still be connected to people who believe so differently from us that it really undermines and feels like it's such a far pull in terms of our values, you know, to have those conversations, to know that the complexity and the context matters, to not just say, you believe this, so you're a horrible person, is to say, well, what other factors should be considered? And so they're teaching me that instead of just going to the quick soundbite, to really look at the context and look at the details and to take things in a way where we really can hold complexity. I think that's so important. I'm easy to essentialize and say good, bad, right, wrong. And for them to really teach me to be a better critical thinker myself and to think about how I make determinations about things. So I think they're making me use my prefrontal cortex a lot (laughs) by asking really good questions and making me realize a lot of what I say and do is based on assumptions that I have that I haven't yet really questioned or looked at in depth. So they're really, really good at challenging me and they're teaching me a lot about asking deeper questions.
1: Hmm. It's great.
2: That is great.
1: Well, we're going to take a detour with this final question. We loved your food-based response a few minutes ago. Yeah. You were heading yeah. in the very direction we wanted to go. <laughs> when we have opportunities to travel and speak, we set out to find some of the best food in the city, and if it happens to involve tacos, that's just an extra win for us. And we were sure in the land of tacos. Yes, you are. We would love to know your Ugh. favorite kind of taco.
2: You guys should be best friends with my husband and me because we are the same we won't go to chains when we're in other places like we want to find the most like off the beaten path place and we are always in hunt for the best tacos we actually at one point we have a list in la of like the best taco like we do really? this this is a practice yes <sighs> and i have an easy answer for you breakfast tacos yes yes oh my goodness. i make them like Anytime I go to Austin, obviously, easy to get them there. In LA, we have a lot of breakfast burritos. There aren't breakfast tacos anywhere. There are breakfast burritos. And we actually do breakfast burritos every Saturday. My husband goes and picks them up. And so we have food practices around breakfast burritos. But I make breakfast tacos. And they're my favorite, favorite, favorite. What about you all? I need to hear about your favorite tacos.
1: We really do want you to come to Nashville because we want to spend time (laughs) with you so badly. And we have have an Austin-based Breakfast taco spot that just okay. opened in 2020, like the best thing to happen to our wow. city in this hard year. Yeah. Three yeah, guys yeah. from Austin and they were committed to making it authentic. It's called Lady Bird Tacos after Lady Bird Lake. Uh, and we're yes, going to take you there if we ever get you here. Yes.
0: Oh, I'm sending you come to Franklin.
1: Okay.
2: Oh, I yes. love
0: it. Count I count on it. it. <laughs> well, you have been such a joy to talk to you. I wish we could talk to you for three more hours. Really. I mean, just I feel like I've learned so much. I have too. I'm
2: so glad Thank to you. get to meet y'all. Y'all are Us definitely two. my people. Yes. I, likewise. Here. Yes. We're going <laughs> to somehow
0: get to one another's town and get to we hang will. out one of these days over talking. Yes. And I'm
2: in Pasadena. So anytime right. you're, you know, Rose Bowl, Rose Parade, we've got great things here in Pasadena yes that's so
0: fun well thank you and thank thank you you for your work and the difference you're making in countless families all over the globe yes thank you for
2: your work and the impact you have on families all over the globe as well it's fun to do this with people right It, it takes a lot of us there's no competition
0: no and we're
2: part of a revolution really in changing intentionality and consistent practices and i just love the the take you all have on that so i really appreciate the opportunity to get to visit with you Thank you Thank so you. much.
1: The Raising Boys and Girls podcast is brought to you in partnership with Minnow. Minnow helps you make screen time meaningful for your family, which shows kids love and values parents trust. Check them out at podcast.gominnow.com. That's podcast.g-o-m-in-n-o.com.